Samuel. First uh, Samuel 26, and uh, I encourage you uh, to follow along there also in your worship guide with the outline that is provided for you uh, on this passage. First Samuel 26 and verse number 1, now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, is David not hiding in the hill of Akilah opposite Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Akilah, which is opposite of Jeshimon, by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness. And he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. And Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army, Now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abisha the son of Zeruhi, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abisha said, I will go down with you. So David and Abisha came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with a spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abisha said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abisha, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please, take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away, and no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Now David went over to the other side and stood on top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you? Calling out to the king. So David said, Abner, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die. Because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. Then Saul knew David's voice. And said, is that your voice, my son, David? David said, it is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, why does my lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done or what evil is in my hand? 
Now therefore, please let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. So now, do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the King of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Well, Yogi Berra is one of my favorite baseball players as a diehard Yankees fan, and he is noted for saying on several occasions the statement, it's like deja vu all over again. That's exactly how he would put it, even though that's what deja vu means, to have something happen all over again. He would say it, it's like deja vu all over again. He was a baseball legend, a a New York Yankees legend, his number, number eight, it, it, it sits in Monument Park there at Yankee Stadium as one of the greatest to ever wear the pinstripes. It's really fascinating. He played for the New York Yankees from 1946 to 1963, and in that time period, won 10 World Series championships. And in September of 2015, he died at the age of 90. Yogi is as famous for his wit and classic sayings as much as he was for his baseball skills. In fact, someone bought me a book many years ago called Yogi-isms. And in that little book were all these little fanciful sayings that he was most noted for declaring. It's said that this particular quote was often said by Yogi whenever his teammates... Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris would hit back-to-back home runs in a ball game. He would be asked about it every time they would do it, and his response would be, it's like deja vu all over again. In a weird way, that saying rang in my mind as I studied 1 Samuel 26. Because if you've been keeping up with our progress through 1 Samuel, then you'll notice that we had a very similar episode between Saul and David just two chapters back in 1 Samuel 24. It was there while David and his men were hiding in the dark recesses of a cave at En Gedi that Saul winds up walking into that exact cave all by himself for the purpose of tending to his personal needs, or as we discovered to use the bathroom. And in that process, David had the opportunity to take Saul's life and put an end to all the troubles he was experiencing as a, as a runaway. And he was tempted to do so, going as far as cutting off the corner of Saul's robe. However, 
When he did so, he immediately felt convicted for doing that. And though the opportunity was still there for him to take Saul's life, he didn't do it. Instead, he declared that Saul's life was not his to take. Saul was the current king of Israel, and David would not touch God's anointed king. It was the message that we entitled, This is the Way. And we were reminded that the way of God's people is a way of restraint and grace and patience. And that's exactly what David displayed there in the cave of Engedi. Restraint, grace, and patience. Now we open up just two chapters later, 1 Samuel 26, and it's like deja vu, as Yogi would say, all over again. It's a nearly identical situation as the one that we had in 1 Samuel 24. The Ziphites uncovered David's location again. Saul and his men go seeking to kill David again. David goes into stealth mode again. Saul's life is spared by David again. And Saul recognizes David's kingship again. Let's work our way through it tonight. Notice number one, Saul again seeks after David's life. Saul again seeks after David's life. Look there in verse 1 of chapter 26. It says, Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Akilah opposite of Jeshimon? Now immediately when I read this thought, I read this verse, the thought came to my mind, what is the deal with these Ziphites? Here, here they are again uncovering David's whereabouts to Saul. The whole reason why Saul knew that David was hiding in the wilderness of Ziph the last time in chapter 23 was because the Ziphites went to Gibeah where Saul resided and told them exactly where David was. And now we see them doing it all over again. It's as if these individuals, these Ziph people, would try to experience some type of uh, political outnumbering, political gain in relation to Saul. And so they had no problem turning David over to Saul if that meant they would get into Saul's favor politically. And that's exactly why we have Saul seeking after David's life. Because here's the Ziphites running to Gibeah to tell Saul, hey, I know where David is. He's over there in the wilderness of Ziph hiding in the hills of Akilah. And as we see the Ziphites again uncovering David's whereabouts, we also see Saul again assembling his troops to go and find him. Now, what was it that Saul said to David back in En Gedi? I want to remind us about it. Back in chapter 24, after this confrontation between Saul and David in the cave, when David could have taken his life, Saul said to David this. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. Therefore, Saul says, may the Lord reward you, David, with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. 
That's what he just said back at En Gedi to David. But now as we come to 1 Samuel 26 and this second appearance of the Ziphites, it would seem apparent that Saul's confession to David at En Gedi was, was empty. He, he can't help himself. Verse 2 indicates that, that he immediately gets up and gets the troops together to go down to Ziph. There's, there's no hesitation on Saul's part. Whatever he had been doing in the intermediate period, as soon as he got word where David was, get the men together. Abner, get the troops. Let us go to the wilderness of Ziph and find David. He is so full of jealousy toward David that he cannot help but to go back to his same old tricks. It's like deja vu all over again, regardless of what he said back at En Gedi. His reaction here simply proves that his sentiments to David were not real. And again, there's no question what he desires to do when he finds him. His trained army outnumbers David's outcast five to one. I mean, this is no match when you put them on the page of skill sets and numerical power. David is no match for what Saul is doing. So he's coming with this large number of troops to do what he's been trying to do for years. He heads toward the wilderness of Ziph. He encamps on the hill of Akilah. And Akilah is where the Ziphites had communicated to Saul that David was. But here we read in the first three verses, but that David has now moved since this news had come to Saul. David is not on the hillside of Aquila. He is now in the wilderness, and he can see every move that Saul and his troops are making. So put, put this in your imagination for a moment. Saul is heading toward the hill of Aquila, where he believes David to be, with 3,000 soldiers. He definitely has the advantage over David numerically. But David had the advantage in terms of perception because he wasn't on the hill of Aquila. He was sitting down in the valley in the wilderness. He could see every movement they were making. He wasn't missing this move of 3,000 soldiers upon the hill. And so here's what David chooses to do. He chooses to send out spies to the hill of Aquila to determine if this was really Saul. That's what he suspected But he needed it to be confirmed, and so his suspicions were affirmed. This was Saul. This was his men. And any hope that David had that Saul's words back at En Gedi were genuine, it certainly now changed. Because David sees that Saul is back. And David is in the same position he has been many, many times with Saul. David now knew. That nothing had changed in Saul. He is again seeking to kill him. And that's what we have in the first few verses. Saul again seeks the life of David. But right down number two here, we see as we come to verse five that David again, again, now keep in mind with our uh, theme of the message, it's deja vu all over again. Saul again seeks to take his life, and now David again refuses to touch God's anointed. So when David affirmed that it was Saul, he made his way near Saul's camp. The Bible says here that he could see where Saul was laying as well as his commander of 
of his army, which is a man by the name of Abner. Verse 5 gives us the layout. Look at it there. Verse 5 says, now Saul was lying within the camp with the people encamped all around him. In my mind, I picture again Saul right in the, in the middle of this hill with the rest of the men just surrounding him on every side. David, in verse 6, turned to some of his men and asked, all right, this is Saul. I see where he is. He is lying down in the center of all of his troops. Who, that's the question in verse 6, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? Now, I'm not sure what David's mindset was here. It's obvious that reconciliation was no longer possible between he and Saul. Saul had proven that by his present actions, he had no interest in making things right with David. But what was David's mindset? What was he thinking when he desired to approach Saul's camp and to do so with only one of his men? We really don't know, but the man who agreed to go was Abisha who happens to be David's nephew. We'll learn more about him in subsequent chapters. Abisha stands up and says, I'll go down with you. And it seems like there's no hesitation even on his part. David is asking this question to a group of men. Abisha quickly volunteers before anybody else does. Which caused me to wonder, what was Abisha's mindset? Was he thinking, finally? Finally, we're going to go and take care of Saul, and I would love nothing more than to be the one to carry this out? For David? Sure, I'll go with you. He's not thinking about being outnumbered. He's not thinking about what plan David has. He hadn't even asked him those questions. He's like, yes, take me, choose me. I want to go. It seems to think here that Abisha is thinking, I'm going to be the one to cut his head off, and I want to be there when it happens. So he quickly volunteers. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what's going through his mind, but the way verse 6 reads is that it certainly doesn't sound good for Saul Abisha's attentions here are to join David in whatever his endeavor may be to end this matter once and for all. So we continue reading and we find that David and Abisha come into the camp. And once again, just like he did in the cave, he approaches the camp in stealth mode, right? And you can't help but wonder, how is this even possible? After all, we have here the king of Israel in Saul... He's lying down in the middle of a camp surrounded by 3,000 troops who are with him, as well as his first commander, Abner, who is right next door. And no one seems to be up watching in the middle of the night to protect him. Does that not seem strange to anyone? Because here David and Abisha is making their way into this environment. David gets so close here to Saul that he actually sees his spear in the ground right next to Saul's head where Saul lay sleeping. I think the mention of this spear is important because David knew that spear very well. Three times it had whistled past his ear in an attempt on his life. He had become very familiar with Saul's spear. But now, in this moment, it's not in Saul's hands. It's stuck in the ground. And not only is Saul not awake, but nobody in the entire camp 
is awake. And so that's the setting. Stealth mode, they move in. They see the layout. Everyone is snoozing. The spear is stuck in the ground right beside Saul's head. And Saul looks to, or excuse me, Abisha looks to David. Verse 8, look at it there, and says, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. Do you hear what he's saying? God has delivered Saul to your hand. We go back to the theme of the chapter. It's deja vu all over again. This is exactly what they said to David at En Gedi. Remember as they're hiding in the back of the recesses of the dark cave, his men whisper to David, David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. This is your moment. Take the sword. End all of this for us today. And here we are again. David gets the layout, Saul's asleep, it's his for the taking, and Abisha's advice is, the Lord has done this. The Lord has delivered it. We also see that our suspicions of Abisha are confirmed here because he's very hopeful to carry this out for David. He says, listen, if you'll just let me do it, I'll put it so strongly through his head, I won't have to do it a second time. He is very, very focused on carrying this out for David. I don't know how much time lapsed, if any, between verses 8 and 9. Because in verse number 8, we have Abisha presenting this plan to David. And then verse number 9, we see David's response. So again, when I look at this, I'm thinking, has any time elapsed? Did, did David think this over, what Abisha was proposing? Or was his response more immediate in nature? I also wonder if the events of chapter 25 that we just looked at last Wednesday night with Abigail and Nabal played any role in David's resolute response here. Because if you'll remember, he learned with Nabal how God does take care of these things for us. And that they're not for us to take into our own hands. Now he wanted to, that's what his flesh drove him to do last chapter. But God put the roadblock in his path. His providence kept David from making a huge mistake. And he learned a very valuable lesson. But regardless of whether David's response in verse 9 was immediate or thought over, this is what he said. Look at it there in verse 9. He says to Abisha, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Again, we, we sense David's heart for God here. Do not destroy him, he says. This was convictional on David's part, not circumstantial. In other words, David is not saying, no, we can't do this because we might get caught. Or, or no, we can't do this because there's too many of them and not enough of us. This is not a circumstantial decision on David's part. It was a convictional decision. Who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's chosen, against the Lord's anointed, and be guiltless? He knew he wasn't supposed to take this matter in his own hands. 
He had tried to do that once already. And when he cut off the corner of Saul's robe, he was so overridden with guilt. He just, he just knew, he knew this was not the way that God wanted me to go about it. I cannot touch God's anointed. Of course, in this response, he also, we also see that David is trusting God. He's trusting God to take care of these issues in his life. That, that God will deal with Saul just as I watched God deal with Nabal. Perhaps that's what was running through his mind. The Lord will strike him. Why, why do you think he's saying there in verse 10, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him? Because it was just in chapter 25 that the Lord struck down Nabal. His enemy, the one who had mistreated him. He had learned that God will take care of our adversaries. God will take care of our enemies. So once again, he has come a long way in his maturation as the next king of Israel. He has learned not to take matters in his own hands. He is trusting God, believing that God will deal with Saul just as he dealt with Nabal. And he says, I don't know how the Lord's going to do it. The Lord may strike him down. It may just come that his day will come that he just dies. It may be that he goes out to battle and perishes. David didn't know, but he says in verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Once again, it it was there for the taking, but he refused to do it. He refused to reach out and take it on his own and in the way that Abisha suggested. He left it to God's purposes. He left it to God's plans. As I thought about that this week, I just wrote down the simple statement, trusting in God is believing that God's plans will come to pass in his time and in his way. Trusting God is believing that God's plans will come to pass in his time And in his way. This is what David is declaring here. He didn't know how or when God would take care of Saul. He simply restrained himself. He simply knew that his responsibility was to trust God to do it. And that as he trusted God, God in his way and in his time would deal with Saul. I think one of the greatest expressions of faith in our life is when we practice restraint. I'm ashamed to tell you that it's probably one of my greatest struggles. We we type A control freaks struggle the most with this type of spiritual discipline. We like to impose ourselves, our will, our thought. It's hard for us to restrain our lips, our actions, our agendas. It's hard for us to restrain ourselves against those who may mistreat us. But yet this is a spiritual discipline of genuine faith. That as we fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit, as we trust God, I mean truly trust God, we are saying, I believe God is going to take care of this. He's going to handle it. He's going to handle it the way He wants to handle it. And He's going to handle it in the timing that He chooses. David refused to take Saul's life, but he did take something. Verse 12 tells us that he took the spear and a jug of water sitting next to his head. Now, we're going to get to the spear here in just a moment. It makes a little bit more sense, but why did he take a jug of water? 
Perhaps some have suggested that because it is representation of sustenance and maybe perhaps David was declaring to Saul in this snatching of the jug of water that God was going to remove sustenance from his life. Maybe it was just a favorite jug of his. We all have a favorite coffee mug that if we see our kids walking around the house with it, we're getting a little upset to be quite honest with you. That's mine. You don't drink out of my cup, right? That's, that's dad's. I don't know if it was a special jug or what it was, but he took it along with the spear. And it was David who did this, not Abisha. I just throw that in there as a side note because when we come to verse 11 and verse 12, you know, Abisha said, hey, let me go take care of this for you. God has delivered him into your hand. I'll go and stab that spear right through his face. I'll only have to do it once and this whole thing will be over with. David says, no, 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 we're not going to do it. And so instead of sending Abisha to go get the jug of water and the spear, perhaps David is thinking to himself, you know what, I better do this by myself because I'm afraid if Abisha goes, he's going to pick up that spear and drive it through his head even though I told him not to. Regardless of the motive. And David is the one who goes and does it. Stealth mode again. He crawls through the camp amidst 3,000 sleeping troops, knowing that it's just him and Abisha. And they get all the way to where Saul is lying down. And they take the spear and the jug of water and both escape the camp without being caught. Verse 12 says, No man. Saw it, or knew it, or woke up, because they were all asleep. Now, I'm a hard sleeper. I don't know if you are or not, but most of the time, in most seasons of my life, if I'm gone, I am out, and it would take a whole lot to get me to awake. And when I do wake up, I'm usually scared out of my mind that something's going on, because that's how hard I've been sleeping. Here they are, they're, they're, they're down, they're sleeping, they're snoozing so strongly, all 3,000 of them, that nobody sees this happen. And the next verse tells us that David got far enough away to be protected from them, but he got close enough for the camp to hear him because he has a message he's going to shout back. He gets far enough away to be protected. He's got his distance, but yet he's close enough for him to speak and they hear now think about what David's getting ready to do because I think we underestimate David's bravery at times. Don't mistake his running from Saul as cowardice. David is no coward. We know that. We saw that when he was just a little shepherd boy taking those five smooth stones and a sling and walking into the valley of Elah and slaying Goliath. He, he is no coward. And I think when we see all this running and chasing and hiding, and that, that maybe, maybe David is fearful of his life. I don't think it has anything to do with the lack of courage or bravery on his part because notice what he does. Once he gets far enough away, maybe it's right in the morning hours, he begins to, to cry out loudly, hoping to wake somebody up. And the first person that he cries out to is Abner, Saul's army commander. He's somewhat poking fun at him. Notice what he says there. He says, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? This is how, he, this is how Abner gets his wake-up call that morning. This voice from across the way. Hey, Abner, I thought you were a man. 
I thought you were a great one in Israel, that no one was like you. Tell me then, Abner, why have you not guarded your king? You deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And as David is saying all of this, he's holding up Saul's spear and that jug of water. (laughs) He's poking at him. He's messing with him. Look, Abner. I thought you were a man, the greatest in the kingdom, the one to protect the king. Hey, look. And what does Abner say? Nothing. He's speechless. But Saul knew David's voice. It seems as if David's episode was a was an alarm clock. And I, and I wonder if Saul at first thought he was dreaming because in verse 17 it says, is, is, is that your voice, my son, David? It's like all this commotion is going on. Saul decides to get up and he's wondering, what in the world is going on? Am I, am I dreaming? I feel like I hear David's here. David, of course, acknowledges in verse 18 that it's him. And he says to Saul, look at it there. Why do you keep pursuing me? Why do you keep coming after me? Why do you keep doing this? What have I done to you? What what evil is in my hand? Saul, when when are we going to stop doing this and just finally the both of us, let let the Lord take care of this. You, You continuing to seek after my life is like trying to hunt a flea. And in verse 21, Saul hollers back. I have sinned. I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more. My life was precious in your eyes this deep. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Unless I've missed something in our journey, this is the first time that we see Saul saying to David, return. What does that mean? Was this Saul asking David to come home? Because if so, we hadn't seen that yet. I've sinned, David. Return, return, come home. I'm done chasing you. I, I, won't, I won't harm you anymore. Well, Saul may have acted foolishly, but David wasn't going to be foolish by taking him up on the offer. He couldn't trust Saul. Perhaps maybe after Engedi he would have, but definitely not now. Because not only has Saul put him in this position many, many, many times again, even after they confronted one another, here we are again. David was not going to be foolish enough to go home. Foolish enough to put himself in that position of Saul's anger and jealousy. So David simply says, here's your spear. Here's your spear. Maybe he clung it in the ground. Here's your water. Here's your spear. I'm not coming home. I'm not going back over to your camp. You just tell one of your men to come over here and get it. Come get it. You talk about faith. David returns to Saul the very weapon by which Saul desires to use to take David's life. Puts it right back in his hands. You talk about faith. Because I'm going to tell you what, if this is me, number one, I wouldn't have been crawling through a camp in the middle of the night with 3,000 sleeping soldiers. 
But even if I had mustered up enough courage to do so, I'm not giving the guy's spear back to him. He's tried to kill me on one too many occasions with that thing. If he's going to get me, he's going to get me with something else. This is his prized weapon. He knows it better than any. So, no, Saul, I'm not coming home with you. I'm going to keep the spear, go on back to my place, have a good evening. But no. David has reached a level in his faith that he willingly hands back over everything that could put his life in danger because he's finally believing the promise that God's going to take care of him. And then we have in verse 23 and 24 what would end up being the last words David would ever say to Saul. Look at it in verse 23. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord. And let him deliver me out of all tribulation. What David was saying here is that God rewards righteousness and faithfulness, not jealousy and evil. I'm giving you the spear back. I'm not going to touch God's anointed because I am learning that God rewards righteousness and faithfulness, not jealousy and evil. And he says, God will deliver me out of all this tribulation. It's the last thing he'll ever say to Saul. And then, of course, we have the last words that Saul would ever say to David in verse 25. Then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son David. In an oddly prophetic way, he says, you shall both do great things and also still prevail. And that's how it ended. Not with them coming together in the camp, hugging it out. No, David went back his way and Saul returned back to his place. Exactly like in the cave of Engedi. Deja vu all over again. Saul again seeks David's life. David again, refuses to touch God's anointed. And then let's just consider this last thing and we'll be done. Thirdly, God again protects his anointed. God again protects his anointed. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to go back to verse 12. This is the only verse we're going to look at before we're done. Because a moment ago, I purposefully skipped a phrase until now in order to bring us back to the realization of God's sovereign providence in every facet of our lives to carry out his divine purposes and plan. Look at how God is working behind the scenes. Verse 12, so David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away, and no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep because, notice this, a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. They were all asleep because God had brought a deep sleep over the camp. Now think about this. David was right to trust God. For God is in every detail of our circumstances. Every detail of it. He caused a deep sleep to fall on Saul's camp that evening, reminding us that God will do whatever he desires in order to keep his people safe. He will do whatever he desires in order to protect his anointed. For the deep sleep that made Saul 
vulnerable was the deep sleep that kept David safe. I read this and reminded the scripture, if God be for us, who can be against us? We don't know all the ways that God is working on our behalf. We don't know the many things that he did today just to keep us safe, just to protect us. And yet here it is in the story of David. David and Abisha having no idea that God is the one who's caused this deep sleep to fall out on the camp. All they knew is everybody is sleeping and they're going to trust God as they carry out this plan. And so it is in our lives. Over and over and over and over again, God protects us. God protects us. God protects us. And sometimes we look back and we see it like we talked about last Wednesday in Providence. And sometimes we will never know it. But we are reminded that we can trust Him. We can trust Him. Because He works in every detail of our circumstances to carry out His plan. I thought of Psalm 91 relating to this point. Psalm 91.11 says, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample underfoot. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. I will show him my salvation. It's deja vu all over again. Once again, the enemy comes after David and he will again and again and again come after us. Once again, David shows restraint, grace, and patience. And we must again and again live by that same faith. And once again, God protects his chosen. And he will again and again and again work through all the details of our life to show his providence and to fulfill his purposes. Let us not fail to thank God in the monotony. Let us not fail to appreciate the acts of God that we cannot see. Because as we go through it over and over and over again, he is right where he has always been, ready to carry out once again his purposes in our lives. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's stand together and pray tonight.